Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that our sins, they are thoroughly awful. Our sins are thoroughly disgusting in your sight, and your mercy is more. Your mercy is more in bounty. Your mercy is more in completeness. Your mercy is more in power. God, these are things we need. These are things we rely on. And these are things, God, that you generously give us. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray now as we turn our eyes and ears and minds and hearts to your word, that you would shape us, that you would move us in hope, that you would correct our stagnance, and that you would accomplish your work. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Throughout my childhood, the phrase going fishing meant that we would go to a pond or a lake with fishing poles, maybe some bait, and we'd put that bait on the end of the line and put it in the water. And then a couple hours later, we'd go home. <laughs> and we'd say things like, you know, the real, really the good part of fishing is just being outside together. And we'd just accept phrases like that. And, and I, I remember being shocked that other people actually caught fish. And that, that their great part of fishing wasn't just being outside together, but I had just been lulled into this understanding that this is how you fish. You go, and you assume there's fish in there, but you never really see them. And then later, I had a very similar experience with pheasant hunting, where one of the signs of success was that you didn't have to clean your gun at the end of the day. <laughs> you got out, you had a nice walk, you maybe saw something off in the distance way out of range, but if you didn't have to clean your gun, that was a win. It was great. Imagine my surprise when I learned that there was something much more fun than just being outside with others. And that was catching fish and eating them. And there was something much more fun than going for a walk while carrying lead. And that was watching the dog you trained retrieve a bird out of a river. That's way more fun than not shooting anything. I had been lulled in to low expectations. I had been lulled in to common expectations. That just going out and not having any success was a perfectly good use of a day. And my expectations were surpassed by what's actually possible. Sometimes in our life, our expectations are bound by mediocre experiences or even worse than mediocre experiences versus what's actually possible. Then, when the possible happens, 
It catches us by surprise, it amazes us, and it changes us moving forward, moving us into a reality that once seemed imaginary. And this morning, it's, we're kind of doing a weird thing. We're starting a new year by ending a very long series. And we're looking at Mark 16, traditionally known as the Easter story. And I, I think we lose sight of the impossibility of Easter because we are so used to, especially those of us who have walked with Christ for quite some time, we are so used to living in a post-Easter world that we lose sight of the impossibility of that original Easter, especially for the perspective of those original disciples that had just days before seen their beloved rabbi tortured and crucified and his lifeless body laid in a tomb covered by a very large stone. Sure, Jesus had raised others from the dead, but they died of much more natural causes than what he had gone through. He was a miracle worker, but when the miracle worker dies of a horrendous, drawn-out torture, who can raise him? What happens when the miracle worker himself is defeated? Let's read Mark 16, and then we're going to work through those, those early days of what we look back on as the Easter story and this, this seemingly impossible thing that happened. So verse, chapter 16, verse 1, we're going to read the whole chapter. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us? From the entrance of the tomb. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who, had, who, had, who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into 
all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents in their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The amazing, never-before-happened, seemingly impossible resurrection of Christ has taken place. And this amazing, never-before-happened, seemingly impossible resurrection of Christ means that nothing is impossible. The women who are going out, Mary, Mary, and Salome, they're going out, they've bought spices, they're, they're going to prepare his body after it's, been, after, after it's been sitting in the tomb over the Sabbath. This was, this was a customary practice as part of the law, and this was, this was in their minds, this was to prepare Jesus for the resurrection that was to come, the great resurrection on the day of the Lord. Their actions are a validation of Jesus' death and burial. But this anointing is unnecessary. Because Jesus, who hasn't done anything according to our expectations, and still doesn't, which sometimes bothers me, had himself anointed for death before he died, doing things seemingly out of order. But they are on their way. They are looking for this, for this way to honor Christ. They are steeped with grief. They don't have a full plan ahead of them. But they are completely sure that Jesus is still in the tomb. They have no doubt in their mind that his body will be there. They are prepared in every way to properly honor a dead body, and they are prepared in no way to encounter the news that Jesus had told them would happen over and over again, that he would not be there that morning. And so they go with their greatest anxiety being, how are we going to move this very large rock? And they get there to find that the rock has already been moved. And they get there to discover that death is not undefeated anymore. That death now has a pretty searing loss on its record. See, up to this point, several people had been raised from the dead. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in Jesus' ministry. And all those people would have to die again. They'd get a go on that ride a second time. But no one, you know, even looking back to the prophets who had raised people from the dead, none of them were then able to raise themselves from the dead. 
And so that Jesus raised someone from the dead, while amazing, was not unheard of. But a prophet who would die and then raise himself, that is new. This has never been done before. This is seemingly impossible. But the women go there, and they're completely worried. Who's going to roll this stone away? They're convinced of Jesus' death, worried about something that the Lord has already taken care of. They're worried about a problem that no longer exists. And isn't this a picture of us? How we will walk with the Lord, and then we will forget what He is capable of, and fill ourselves with anxiety of worry about something that he's already accomplished, something that he's already promised would take place. And we approach that problem as though we've never heard of such a solution. Only to be surprised by his grace and his power. And certainly surprised. Is, is an understatement. The text says they were trembling and astonished. And this trembling and astonishment had seized them. What a surprise it must have been to walk in there and find this guy that they've never seen before, dazzling white clothes, going, hey, Jesus isn't here anymore. He is risen. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Surely, the eyes of these faithful women. And we see in the text moving forward, the eyes of the disciples themselves are too low. And they are looking way too far for the resurrection of Jesus. Similar to Martha when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus. And he goes, he's not dead, he's going to rise again. And Martha goes, oh, I know, on that resurrection day he'll rise again. And Jesus is like, no, right now. These women are experiencing that same exact dynamic. Well, we know Jesus is going to rise, you know, this mythical third day. Who know, you know, we all have our charts to figure out when the third day is going to be. But here, they find out that the resurrection of Christ is not something that is too low and too far out but it is something that is immediate right now, and we need to not underestimate what the Lord can do immediately. And what the Lord can do right now. Well, it's one of the things that's interesting here in the text is Jesus says, go tell the, or the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. And then we read right after this that the first person Jesus appears to is Mary Magdalene, of whom he had cast out seven demons. Now, why are these people given such a, a, a singular, why are their names brought out this way? Why, why are they being honored this way? It's showing us the, the heart of our resurrected Savior. Peter, as much as all of them are weeping and grieving, Peter, on top of the grief of losing Jesus, is racked with guilt and shame, having denied him three times after swearing he would die with him. Mary Magdalene, having put herself and gotten herself into such a place through her own sin that she was now possessed, or at one point possessed by seven demons, and Jesus delivered her from that. 
It's an absolute mess of sin. And we have two people who have every worldly right to view themselves as completely outside the love of God, unable to enter in. Peter and Mary, unable to save themselves, but with the Lord all things are possible. Look, this is January 1. Happy New Year. At least I hope it is. But this is the day, like all of you are at your best right now. Right? Like this is, you've all, we all turn the calendar, we're a brand new person, it's a brand new year, you're at your best. You've stopped smoking, you did your devos this morning, you did a couple extra sit-ups after having a breakfast of raw kale, because this is the year you're getting your life back on track. And then you came here and like gorged on donuts because kale didn't do it for you. But this of all days, when our resolutions are at their strongest, we feel at our best. We are our most optimistic about who we are and what we can be. And if there were ever a day we would feel worthy of walking into the presence of God, January 1st would be that day. This would be the day we would feel like we finally have ourselves together. And we hear the phrase that Jesus loves sinners a lot. And I would say that we need to hear that phrase a whole lot. Because even though today you feel at your absolute best because your resolutions, they haven't had time to be broken, but I, I just need to point out that the reason you have resolutions is because yesterday you did not feel good about yourself. And you may feel good right now, but how did you feel back in October? Where was your, your sense of worthiness before God in July? Or even February 2nd of last year, when all your 2022 resolutions had already fallen by the wayside? Where are you in terms of feeling worthy to enter in when your anger rises up, when you feel completely impatient, when you realize that you have a lack of faith, when you've been disobedient to the Lord's call of personal holiness, and you've been lazy with the gospel. Peter and Mary Magdalene may stand out as these extreme examples of someone who's repeatedly denied Christ or someone who's been so spiritually dark that they've literally had seven demons living in them and controlling them. But I think, I'd say I know, that all of us have, have had these wrestlings of the idea that the Lord wants nothing to do with me. The Lord has no desire to have me in his presence. He may, maybe he did at one point, but now after I've done what I did last week, he certainly wants nothing to do with me. And in Mark 16, we have this kind of gentle scream coming off the pages. The Lord wants everything to do with you. 
The Lord loves sinners. He doesn't want people who are convinced of their own goodness. He wants people who know their need for a Savior. He wants people desperate for something new because he has something new to give you. Nothing is impossible. Death is no longer undefeated. Those who have really messed up can be brought back. And believing nothing impossible must include the astounding truth that the holy God of heaven loves you and desires for you to walk with him and has made it possible at the blood of his own son. Nothing is impossible. The amazing, never-before-happened, seemingly impossible resurrection of Christ also means that truth is bigger than fear and doubt. I want to give like just a, a couple Bible geek comments, and then we're going to get back into the text. Because I'm guessing a lot of you have this weird heading in your Bible here, this break that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20, and that's true. Of the thousands of ancient manuscripts and copies of the text that we have, about the earliest two to four of those don't have these verses. But the words of these verses are certainly found and corroborated through the rest of Scripture. This is held as the Word of God for many people, for, for Christians and churches throughout history. And so while we know they weren't in the earliest texts, we know that God has given them to us. And th this is also, this is just one of those things for me, whenever I see this kind of heading in my Bible, I see the countless men and women of God throughout history who have, whether it's been through archaeological work to find these ancient texts, through the study of them, through the copying of them, and the faithful handing down of God's word over time, I see in here God's fingerprint of preserving his word for his people throughout time and protecting his word. And that's such a good thing. Okay, so truth is bigger than fear and doubt. We see here that the women in verse 8, they, they say nothing to anyone because they're afraid. That Jesus, we, we read, and and. That, that Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene before any of the others, and she went and told them they didn't believe her. Whether because she was a woman, they didn't believe her, or because their, their fear and their doubt and their grief was too so extreme that they couldn't hear any news like that, they didn't believe her. And every time I read these passages, I think, how did Thomas get the label? They all doubted. We could have Peter the doubter, James and John the doubter, Bartholomew the doubter. It's not just doubting Thomas. It's doubting disciples. They all did not believe. They were mourning and weeping. They can't hear. Their, 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 their ears can't process this news that Jesus has risen. We need to look at the historical context before we just heap a bunch of shame on these guys. 
Jesus was not the first man to raise up, have a big following, and get killed. This had happened quite a bit before Jesus. There were several people who had risen up, and and the whole crowds come, they're like, this is our Messiah, he's here. We're going to get our freedom from whoever's politically oppressing us now. And then they'd die, and their following would go away. This happened before Jesus, it happened after Jesus. I think, it, I think it explains a lot of how the crowd went from Hosanna to crucify in a week. They'd seen this horse and pony show of someone rising up, potentially being the Messiah, only to die a horrible death. And the moment they saw him arrested, they weren't going to, they, they were done giving their affection to him. We've been conned by enough false messiahs, Jesus of Nazareth. Just crucify him like the rest. We'll wait for the next Messiah. They had seen this before. But here's where Mark and the other gospel writers are laying out a distinct argument for the purpose of their readers to hear and see and believe that Jesus of Nazareth was not one of those false messiahs, but the Messiah sent from heaven for the the salvation of of the world. And they do something atypical of the time. Fiction of this time and era just lacked a lot of personal details. And here, the New Testament, they give names and places and instances. These are factual things. This this was written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. The gospel writers wanted you to go and say, hey, you were at that group. Did Jesus really appear to you? They wanted people to dig in. They wanted people to ask those questions. They write this in a factual, credible way. So that people would believe. So that we wouldn't fall into the same trap as the disciples of saying, well, yeah, there was a guy, his name was Jesus, he did some good stuff, he taught some good things, and now he's not here anymore. They're building an argument, pleading with us not to fall into that same trap of unbelief, but to believe. Building the argument that when we go with Jesus, when we become followers of Jesus, when we attach ourselves to him by making him our Lord, that we have the same end as Jesus. And Jesus said this. When we follow him, the world will treat us as it did him. And when we follow him, the Father in heaven will treat us as he treats his son giving us a seat at the banquet table, giving us a room in the house, calling us sons and daughters. The resurrection is not a happy ending to a story. It is much, much more than that. It is not to give us a little bit of inspiration, but it is to change our lives. Keller Keller says, um, the point of the resurrection isn't to motivate us to be kind to one another, 
But to, he says, imagine for a moment someone preaching to the slaves in the city of Antioch. And imagine him saying, ah, the resurrection is just basically an inspiring story. You know, it means that, that somehow good is stronger than evil, so just be kind to one another. Would it be possible for any of the slaves to say, wonderful, this message transforms my life of grinding misery and oppression to triumphant hope? Of course not. But that's not what Paul said. When he got to the cities of the Mediterranean, he said, they saw him and they touched him. He really rose. That proves that the kingdom of God is real and will triumph. And if you believe, you will enter his realm of power now. The story of Jesus changes our lives because it's true. This isn't one man raising from the dead. This is one man raising so all can have life eternal. Have you ever faced a situation where someone more knowledgeable than you told you how something would happen? You didn't quite believe them, and then what they said actually happened? And there's this grand, I told you so moment. And these I told you so moments, we tend to think they're negative. I messed up, I faced the consequences, someone told I t said I told you so, and I was like, yeah, you're right, I gotta face this. But sometimes that I told you so is a really good thing. I told you, if you love and serve your wife and your family, as, as, as Scripture calls you to as a husband, that you'll, you'll find blessings in that. You're like, oh, I loved and served my wife and my family, as Scripture calls me to, laying myself down like Christ. And there's a blessing in that. There's good I told you so. So this is the grandest of all I told you so's. As the angel tells Mary, Mary, and Salome, that he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. And so Jesus then joins the 11. He rebukes them for their lack of faith. And it's not just a lack of faith, it's just a lack of hearing. Guys, you remember when I said, I'm going to be crucified, the chief priests are going to deliver me, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day I'm going to raise? Ta-da! I don't think Jesus said it quite like that. But there's this grand, I told you so. Christ told them over and over and over again. And we all need to hear these I told you so's from Scripture over and over again. I told you that life with me, life the way I've called you to live it, is more abundant than anything the world can offer. I've told you I'll never leave you or forsake you. I've told you, I've forgiven you of those sins. I've told you, my word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. It will guide you where you need to go. I've told you these things. I've told you I love you this much. I've told you I would give hope to the nations. I've told you I would start a new covenant. I told you I would raise from the dead. Oh, how we need the Lord over and over again to tell us what he has said. Keller says that the gospel is the ultimate story that shows victory coming out of defeat, strength coming out of weakness, life coming out of death, rescue from abandonment. And because it is a true story, it gives us hope because we know life is really like that. 
It can be our story as well. God made you to love him supremely, but he lost you. He returned to get you back, but it took the cross to do it. He absorbed your darkness that one day you can finally and dazzlingly, there it is, become your true self and take your seat at his eternal feast. We live in this world of not just the I think, therefore I am, but I've shaped my reality, therefore it is. And that can be a really dangerous ideology when it comes to faith. Because faith requires that my, me to recognize that my ideology is wrong and God has set forth a truth for me to walk in. And that for me to walk in faith means that I need to take my ideology, my paradigm of the world, and say, it's skewed because I'm skewed. And I need to walk with the Lord trusting that he, as the creator of the universe, the savior of my soul, knows more about this than me. And I need to put my paradigm on the shelf. And the resurrection and Jesus appearing to these men and women who were completely convinced he was dead shows me that I can do that. It shows me that I have a very limited paradigm, worldview, whatever you want to call it. But on my own, that is just so dangerously limited. And the resurrection of Christ blows it up. Truth is bigger than my fear and my doubt. So let us take this, I told you so, of the resurrection, and may it motivate us and move us in obedience with his other words. And he has other words because we have a job. Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes it and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. There's a grand importance of the global command. We, somewhere along the line, Christians started looking only for open doors. I heard a testimony years ago of a man who had to sell a successful business to follow the Lord and go into ministry, use his work trades in ministry. He said, God didn't open a door for me. He told me to run at the wall. If you want an open door, here's your open door. Go into the world, proclaim the gospel of the whole creation. Your open door is that your Savior has told you to go out and proclaim. Announce that Jesus is Lord, that God loves you so much that while you didn't care about him, he cared about you enough to send his son to die for you. To all people, to all places. We see the follow-up that they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. 
I love the lack of shallow end of this command. Sometimes I think we want to treat the, the Great Commission like a beach, or it's like, this, or like a zero-entry swimming pool, where I can just like get just the bottom of my feet wet. I can be in the pool, and my toenails are dry. And I'm just as much in the pool as if I was in the deep end. There's no zero entry to this. We are just in it. It's a deep end. The whole thing is a deep end. And this whole idea of like, I can't go into the all creation proclaiming the gospel. I, Chuck Mulliken, on my own cannot do that. And praise be to God that I, on my own, do not do that because the Lord works with me. He gives me the message. Believe and be baptized and you will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. This is, this is a hard word for us sometimes because it appears as though like I can believe and then before I'm baptized, I'm not saved yet. The baptism is the accompanying step of obedience to the faith. Notice he doesn't say those who are, you know, he doesn't go into like this kind of like long list. He says, believe and be baptized, you will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And he doesn't go on to say, but those who, who are baptized will be partly saved. No, the, the whole emphasis is on faith. It always has been with walking with God. But we do need to ask. If you proclaim that Jesus is your Savior and you are unwilling to enter into baptism, there's a question that needs to be asked. Why? Why would you not do that? Why would you not take that step of obedience? Of showing the world Jesus is my Lord. And what I've found is there's, there's, there's typically a couple answers. One, someone says they're not really ready yet. In which case, we need to lean in. What does it mean that Jesus is your Lord and what does it mean what he's done for you? And typically the other answer is, boy, I didn't realize it was that big of a deal. It's a big deal. But the other big deal is a lot of people who are baptized without faith. J.C. Ryle, you knew I'd quote him in my last message from Mark. Thousands are washed in sacramental water who are never washed in the blood of Christ. But it does not follow, therefore, that baptism is to be despised and neglected. It is appointed by Christ himself. The baptismal water itself can, conveys no grace. Stepping aside from Ryle, I heard a pastor once say, the only way baptism leads you straight to heaven is if you are saved and the pastor holds you under too long. We don't do that here. <laughs> Ryle goes on to say, the public confession of Christ, which is implied in the use of water, is, sacramental act, is a sacramental act which our master himself has commanded, and when the ordinance is rightly used, we may confidently believe that he seals it by his blessing. And so I'd ask you, what are you gaining by not being baptized? The answers are resounding nothing. Walk with the Lord. Step in this obedience. So we have this message, we have the instruction, we have the message, and then we have this supernatural help. 
These signs will accompany those who believe. This is stuff we see in Acts. In my name, they, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. It's interesting here. We have seen many, many Christians die because of their confession of Christ, die in the work of proclaiming Christ. And there's also been many who should have died and haven't. That the Lord has protected them to prolong their message. The Lord has aided them to escape prison, to escape physical destruction. When we live obediently dependent on the Lord, his power is evident. I found this is, this is purely autobiographical. This is not me speaking in a prescriptive way about what your Christian life ought to be. This is purely autobiographical. When I am living in gospel laziness, my spirituality atrophies. I don't experience the power of God in a, in a daily recognizable way. However, I have found, and that I don't think this is a surprise to anyone, that when I am most active in my faith, whether that is helping people in times of need, sharing my faith with someone who doesn't believe, walking with the Lord in, in, in fuller, richer communion of daily life, I find that in those times, I see his power a lot more clearly. Now, here's the deal. I don't for a second think God's power is not at work in my life when I am gospel lazy. I think I'm too blind and too lazy and personally too dull to recognize it. But when I step out in faithfulness, in reading his word, in studying his word with other people, in sharing the gospel with those around me who don't know it yet, I am more reliant on him, and he is faithful. That God is faithful. It's one thing for me to on the ground watch a skydiver and go, wow, that parachute's really trustworthy. It's another thing for me to jump out of a plane with a parachute I've never used yet. And to say this parachute is trustworthy. I want to challenge you to step out in faith and sharing your faith this year. And maybe that means you get involved in pancakes. Maybe you've always thought, I don't have, there's not a place for me in pancakes. I don't know how to cook. I'm terrible at doing the dishes. What is there for me to do at pancakes? The only thing I'm good at is talking to people. We have an opportunity for you. Steve, I'm just going to call you out real quick. Is there a place in the pancake ministry for those who are terrible at cooking and doing dishes but love to talk to people? Absolutely. Okay, absolutely, he said. Come on Wednesday nights to help out with the ESL program. 
or come on Wednesday nights to help out with the children's ministry that's being filled with children from the ESL program. We want to, we want to give you opportunities. And the other thing is maybe, maybe for whatever reason those don't work. Just look at who God has divinely put around you. Whether that's in your home, whether that's in your neighbor's house across the street or next to you. Maybe that's just a cubicle over at work. These people that you spend a ton of time with, you're around constantly, and they don't know Jesus. Do you think it's possible that the sovereign God of heaven who put the sun and the stars and the moon and the earth in its place and sustains it, do you think it's possible, and I'm going out on a limb here, that he also put you next to those people for a reason? Would you share your faith? Here's the challenge I want to put before you. Who are two people that you could talk to about Jesus between now and Easter? Who are two people that you could talk to about Jesus between now and Easter? And here's the second part of it. Don't do that alone. Find a friend here at church and say, hey, here's my two people. Who are your two people? And let's pray with each other for those people. Could we do that? Between now and Easter, two people for you to share your faith with. Who are those people? Here's what's crazy, and this is the resurrected power of Christ. So the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken, he was taken up into heaven, at, seated at the right hand of God, where he still is praying for us. And they, these disciples who were cowered in a room, weeping and crying in disbelief, those same people went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. The end of the Great Commission in Matthew. Surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. As you share your faith with these two people, the Lord is going to be working with you. Isn't that wild? That Christ would be with you in the break room of your office? That Christ would be with you in your neighbor's living room or in your living room with your neighbor? Isn't that wild? You're not alone. The Lord transformed these people from in a room afraid to facing unknown lands, peoples, cultures, dangers, and facing all of that with boldness because Christ is powerful and Christ is worthy. And they were living in the reality of a resurrected Savior. Their expectations were changed from low and mediocre and defeated to risen and new and powerful. May it be so for us. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. We praise you, God, that Jesus rose from the dead, that we are not here looking back on someone who's still on a cross or someone who's still in a tomb, but a risen Savior who is at your right hand praying for us, who has sent us his Holy Spirit so that, that, Lord, when we go out and do your work, Lord, that you work with us. God, thank you for working with us, that you, you are always with us. You never leave us or forsake us. God, I don't know what I told you so promised from Scripture everyone in here needs to hear, but Lord, I pray that we would hear it. I pray that we would hear your loving, gentle voice saying, I told you this would happen.
I told you my word would not return void. I told you I would be with you to the end of the age. I told you your sins would be removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Lord, thank you for telling us these things over and over again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.